All right, well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. So Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And we'll stop there. As I said, I'll only be going through the first five verses this morning. So as we come into Romans chapter 5, we are entering a new section, a new part of Paul's argument through the book of Romans here, or through the letter uh, to the Romans here. Uh, he starts off, of course, he introduces himself, he, he greets the, the saints at the church in Rome, and then he gives forth his great uh, thesis statement for the whole entire book in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, where he says he's not ashamed of the gospel of God, for in it, it contains the, the revelation of the righteousness of God. And we were kind of hammering that theme of revelation, how the gospel is a revelation uh, throughout those first three chapters. And we saw how God's wrath was first revealed to Gentiles in verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, how God's wrath is being revealed, how it is even now being revealed. And then as we got into chapter 2, we saw that Jews, the Jews are also recipients of God's wrath, but instead of it being revealed, it is hidden. It was hidden. It was being stored up and, until, until the day of Christ and you know, trying to provoke the Jews to repent. Because one of the things they were doing is they were, they were boasting, they were taking pride in their Jewishness, they were taking pride in their circumcision, they were taking pride in their having the law. And God says, just because you have the law, just because you're circumcised does not mean you are escaping God's wrath. In fact, if you're not currently experiencing wrath, it's because of God's grace, his mercy, his kindness towards you, his people. But know this, if you do not repent, you are storing that wrath up. You are storing that wrath up until the day that dam will burst and it will all come upon you. And then we looked at chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 20, where Paul then lays the indictment. It's sort of like uh, we kind of use the law and order kind of motif from the TV show Law and Order. So here's Paul. He is the prosecutor, and he's got the indictment from God in hand as he reads the charges on the indictment. Some of those charges saying that all have turned aside, none seek after God, none are righteous. In other words, the law cannot save you. The law, all it does is it just shows you your sin. It just shows you that you are unrighteous before God. 
And that any way of trying to earn righteousness through the law has been removed from you. It has been removed from you ever since Adam sinned in the garden. Since that point in time, you cannot earn righteousness in the law because, for one thing, we are already born with a debt. We're already born unrighteous, so you're already, <laughs> you're, you're already lost before you even start. And then, even as you start, even as you try to earn righteousness, your righteousness is not going to be up to the level that is required in God's law. You're always going to fall short because even though you may do good deeds, you may not do them with the right heart uh, attitude, the right mind attitude, or you may not be doing it for the glory of God. So you're, you're, you're lost. You're just lost from the beginning. Now, after giving us that sort of double-barreled dose of bad news, that sort of drinking from the fire hose of bad news, then God comes forth in Romans 3.21 and now shines the light of the good news upon us, where he says that even though all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all can be freely justified as a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about that word propitiation, how Christ is put forth as a propitiation by God, one who turns away God's wrath of sin and one who also by his blood pays for our sin debt. He pays the full debt that our sin incurred uh, to God. And then he goes forth to show us that justification, this justification, which we also talked about how justification is a declaration. It is a, you are being declared righteous. You don't have any inherent righteousness in yourself, but you have, you are being declared righteous because of what Christ has done. His righteousness is then imputed to you. This justification is on the basis of faith apart from works of the law. So this contrast again of grace and faith and works and law is being put forth here as well. It can't be earned. It can't be merited. It can only be graciously bestowed by God. And then as we looked at in Romans 4, the last couple weeks, Paul then takes us through a sort of a case study, a case study in the life of Abraham, how Abraham shows that this principle, that you are justified by faith apart from works of the law, was something that was always part of God's plan. And it was, it was set forth and demonstrated in the life of Abraham. We looked at how Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we looked at Genesis 15 and how in, in that statement, you know, God promises to him again, I think it's like the third time he promises to him that he will have numerous descendants and that he will have possession of the land. And it says there that Abraham believed. And then because of that faith in God, then it is counted to him, it was imputed to him as righteousness. And then we also looked at how that imputation was done apart from obedience to the law because the law was given 430 years later. So there was no law, at least no Mosaic law in the time of Abraham. There were certainly commands of God and, and, and the law written on your heart, but there was no Mosaic law given at that point in time for Abraham to obey anyway. And we also saw that this imputation was done before he was even circumcised. Because, you know, again, you know, Paul here is showing, it's like, look, you know, the Jews, again, they take, they, bo- they boast, they take pride in their, in their law keeping, the fact that they are recipients of the law. They take pride and they boast in their circumcision that they're somehow set apart and special. But he's like, look, Abraham was justified by faith before the law. He was justified by faith before he was circumcised. 
So these things you're taking pride in, Abraham was already justified by faith before any of these things were given. In fact, he goes on to say that circumcision was a seal. It was a seal. Like we, we talked about how that word means like a certificate. It's, it's proof. It's like he, it was a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith. So now as we get to Romans 5, Paul is now going to, having laid out his argument that justification is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, he's now going to start looking at some of the many blessings, some of the many implications that we, could see, that we see of this gospel of free justification by grace through faith in Christ. So he's going to start looking at the benefits of justification. And just to kind of give you a mini roadmap of what's going to lie ahead up until the end of Romans 8. Here in Romans 5, 1 through 11, we're going to see because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have access to God. We have hope and we have acceptance in God. And then the last half of Romans 5, he's going to show us how this justification we have by faith is founded on the obedience of Christ. And he's going to draw a parallel between Adam and Christ. How in Adam we have all fallen, and then in Christ we have all been made, uh, we have been saved or justified by, by his obedience to the law. As Christ is the new Adam or the second Adam. In Romans 6, we're going to see that because we're justified, we've been freed from the power and the dominion of sin. Sin no longer has any reign or rule in our lives because we have been set free. We have been justified by grace through faith. The power of sin has been broken. Okay, the, the presence of sin is still here, and that's what we see in Romans 7. Romans 7 shows us that sin is still present in our bodies, but its power has been broken. And the power of sin has been broken so that you don't have to obey its lusts. You don't have to obey its enticements. You can choose to be righteous. You can choose to be obedient in Christ. And then, like I said, in Romans 7 shows us how we're no longer under the condemnation of the law as well. The law has no claim on us. Because as Paul says early in Romans 6, we have died. And he says in Romans 7, we have died to the law. You know, you think about it, it's like if, you, if you've been legally, you know, convicted of, of a capital offense, and then you go and you're executed, if somehow, you know, they pronounce you dead, and then by miracle of miracle, you come back alive, it's like, can they hold you accountable anymore? It's like, no, because they, they've, already, they've already killed you. That's what the, Paul, the point Paul is going to make in Romans 7. It's like, you've died to the law. It's like, it no, it no longer has any hold over you anymore. And then in Romans 8, we'll see that, uh, what the spiritual what the spiritual life is like as we are guaranteed the ultimate victory in Christ. So, the, you know, again, like I said, the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin is still there, and that the victory for us is through the spiritual life that is provided through the Spirit by Christ, who gives us the Spirit. But this morning, what we're going to look at is uh, Romans five one through five, and. We're going to, Paul's going to start enumerating some of the immediate benefits of justification. So as we come to Romans 5.1, note first, the first benefit of our justification is peace here, where he says in 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the therefore, 
is there to show that he is concluding an argument that he had just made. So as he comes to the end of chapter 4, he has finished laying out the premise that we are justified by faith, by grace through faith. And this was also exemplary in, in the life of Abraham. And now he says, therefore, because of what we just saw in Romans 3 and 4, you now have peace with God. It's a transition. And a result of our having been justified is that we have peace. Now, again, we talked, we said this just a little while ago. Justification is a legal declaration. Okay? It is a legal declaration. The one who is justified has been declared or pronounced righteous by God. You know, so you come before God's court of law and the, you, know, the, you come with your sin and then you come in faith in Christ and then God says you are innocent. Not because of anything you've done, but because you have Christ as your shield. You have cloaked yourself in the righteousness of Christ. So you are now innocent. You have been declared righteous. And now that we have been justified by faith, he says we have peace. And this word peace uh, in the original is Irene, which if you know anybody named Irene, (laughs) it's probably where that word is derived from. The name means peace. So Irene means peace, uh, harmony. Tranquility kind of carries all these ideas. And it speaks of the idea of a relational harmony, a relational accord that you or concord that you have, you know, sort of like the absence of conflict. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. It's also used as a greeting. You see this in all the letters of Paul and in the New Testament letters. You know, I, Paul, you know, I'm writing to you, the Romans, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's part of a greeting. We could also speak of peace as a state of mind or or, uh, a a mode of being. You know, you feel at peace in yourself. You feel, you know, the absence of any kind of conflict in yourself, freedom from anxiety or things like that. But it also speaks of reconciliation from God or with God, reconciliation with God. And the truth of the matter is that before we were justified by faith, we were in a state of enmity with God. We were at war with God. Now, maybe you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm a nice guy or a nice gal. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I, I'm not, I wouldn't be at war with anybody. I just want to, can't we all just get along, you know? And, uh, well, unfortunately, your opinion does, is, is, on this subject doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you think you're a nice person. It doesn't matter that you try to live in harmony with one another. If you are not justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, you are at enmity with God. That is, the, that, is the, that is just the truth. That is just the truth. That's the whole point of Paul's argument in Romans 1.18 through 3.20 to show you that you are at enmity with God. If not, God is certainly at enmity with you. <laughs> you know, you are under his wrath. <laughs> if you are a Gentile, the wrath of God is being poured on you already. You're experiencing, as we talked about, that downward spiral of God's wrath as he gives them over to their sin. And if you're a Jew, that wrath is being stored up for you. That enmity is being stored up for you unless you repent. Paul says elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, he says, "...and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world." According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. 
We were by nature children of wrath. That's, that's the state into which we're born. Every person born in this world is born a child of wrath. But now we have peace. And now we have peace. This is a peace, as Paul will say in Philippians 4, 7, passes all understanding. In other words, it's an objective peace. It is an objective peace. Okay? You, if you are justified by grace through faith in, in, in Christ, then you are at peace with God. God has declared the war's over, and now there's peace. You know, what is the John Lennon song? Goes, uh, all we are saying is give peace a chance, right? <laughs> well, you know, if you're justified by grace through faith in Christ, you have peace. And it's an objective peace. It's a peace that doesn't depend on your feelings. It doesn't depend on your state of mind. It doesn't depend on your current circumstances. This is very important to get to, to understand. Because when we're in this world... We, our feelings, may, we may not feel as though we're at peace with God. We may be going through some bad circumstances and we may feel, I don't feel like I'm at peace with God. In fact, I feel like God is out to get me. That was, you know, we, when we look for Ruth, what was Naomi's statement? When she goes out to the land of Moab and she loses her husband, then she loses her sons, and then she comes back and she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. I'm bitter. I'm bitter because... The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Okay, it could feel like that sometimes. It can feel like the hand of the Lord has gone out against us. But if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you trust in him alone for your justification, you have peace, despite what your circumstances may say. And that peace is through our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't broker this deal with God. We didn't, you know, try to, we didn't convince God to come to the bargaining table. You know, we, you know, God declared us righteous and he then now is at peace with us. It was initiated by God. In fact, we weren't even seeking it or looking for it. (laughs) Okay. So that's, that's the good news of that. But not only do we have peace through Jesus Christ, but we also have access, access in, in verse two. So through Jesus, or through, uh, through whom, that's Jesus, through, through Jesus also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So here's another important benefit of justification is this access that we have with God. And here the word for access speaks of sort of the privilege of being able to enter into the presence of of a person of high importance, okay? Now, imagine if you were granted an audience with, let's say, like the Queen of England, or, you know, Donald Trump calls you up on the phone and says, hey, I'd like to have you over in the Oval Office for coffee. You know, that's, that's access, right? You know, you, it, it, there's probably a very, very teeny tiny small list of people who have that level of access, okay? That's what he's speaking of here. It also denotes a profound change in status between the individual and God, right? If you remember uh, from the prophet Habakkuk, when God told him that he would bring the Chaldeans to judge the people of Israel, because you know, Habakkuk is sitting there lamenting the, the state of his people to God. It's like, you know, we're wicked. Can you do something about it? He says, yeah, I'm going to do something about it. <laughs> I'm going to send the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk's like, what? <laughs> Those guys, I mean, they're more wicked than we are. And God's like, yeah, what of it? 
But anyway, he sends the Chaldeans to judge. And then uh, his reply back to God is, well, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon wickedness. Okay, so think about it again. Before you were justified by grace through faith, you were in a state of sin. You were in a state of guilt. You were under wrath. You were under the law. And then you would have no access to God. You would have zero access to God. Think again of the Old Testament sacrificial system. All right, you had the layers of the, of the tabernacle. You had the outer court where the sacrifices were brought. You had the inner court where the, the priests would minister before God. And then you had the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go in once a year to offer the blood of atonement on the mercy seat, which was the Ark of the Covenant there in the, in the center of the temple. Now, think about the access to God, how that was barred, okay? Only, only the, the priests and Levites could go into the, into the tabernacle at all. The rest of the people had to be outside. And only priests could then go into the holy place, and then only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and he had to do all sorts of things to get there. He had to wash himself and cleanse himself and offer a sacrifice for himself, and then he had to bring the blood of the sacrifice in there. All that access was barred. In other words, the access to God was guarded because Christ had not yet come. And then all of these sacrifices were pointing to the fact that you had to do a lot of things over and over and over and over again in order to have just a teeny tiny bit of access to God. And then what happens when Christ dies on the cross in the Gospels? What do we see when that happens? Yeah, the, the veil that barred access to God was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Okay, very important. From God down to us. It is opened up and now access is provided because the perfect Lamb of God was sacrificed for our sins and now that access is granted to those who believe. The point being that sin and evil cannot abide in the presence of God. He is a consuming fire. His holiness would destroy us were we to go before him with our sin uncovered. But because of the justification by faith that we have granted to us, we now have access to God through Christ, okay? Through whom we have access. He is is the means by which we have access to God. We were in a wretched state before God and now we are accepted. The access we now have uh, through Christ is based on a foundation of grace. It is based on a foundation of grace. Again, it's all of grace. It is all given to us freely by God. God's grace, his unmerited favor, serves as the ground upon which we stand, upon which we are established in this state. And it is this justification then that gives us a sure footing. Okay, so you know, you're able to plant your feet on the justification that we have by grace through faith and is a firm, you know, as, as the song says, the, the classic hymn, a firm foundation, okay, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, again, if you're thinking, if you think about the contrast between grace and law, between faith and works, imagine if our standing was, uh, our standing and our access was based upon our obedience to the law. So imagine if our, our access or our standing before God was based on our obedience to the law. How do you think we would fare? We would fail, right? If, 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 if anything else, you would never have any assurance in your life. 
You know, and if you think about it, every other religion other than Christianity is all based on some kind of works. Okay, it's all based on some kind of merit. It's all based on, well, I'm going to hope that my good outweighs my bad. But how do you know? How do you know? You know, you just kind of hope. And it's like, okay, well, I did my best. And I'm going to go up there and, like, and just let the chips fall where they may. That doesn't sound like a plan to me. <laughs> that doesn't sound like, that sounds like an awful plan to me. No, because it's on, on a foundation of God's grace, our footing is sure, our standing is certain. And then this certainty then gives us a reason to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, it's interesting, that word rejoice literally is the word for boasting. <laughs> All right, Paul used it in Romans 2.17 in Romans 3.27, and in Romans 4.2. And in all those places, it's translated as boasting. Okay? But here, uh, Paul is going to give us a reason to boast or a reason to rejoice in the glory of God. Okay? Because we have been justified by, uh, by grace through faith in Christ, we have uh, peace, we have access, and we have a reason to boast. Okay, we don't boast in our works. The reason to boast is in the fact that we have peace with God, access through our justification by faith. And that word hope, I don't know if we talked about this before, uh, but it's, it, it's not used like how we use hope today. Okay, I'm, I'm a longtime Cub fan. I know my friend Corey here is a longtime Cubs fan too. And uh, before 2016, you know, every year the Cubs would maybe start off strong and then fade in August or June. Or the, in fact, when I was growing up, it was called the June swoon. Okay, they would do well up into June and then they would fall apart and then they would usually end up in the at the last place. But you know, then at the end of the season, we would say, "Well, we'll just hope again in next year, <laughs> and hope again in next year, and hope again in next year." You know, that's the kind of hope we talk about. Or you know, maybe you go out and you buy a lottery ticket and you say, "Well, I hope I'm going to win." You don't really expect to win. You know, you, you're just like, oh, I hope it, you know, I hope I win. Things like that. That's how we use hope. We use it to kind of as wishful thinking. Okay? That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that what you are hoping in will come to pass. And the reason it'll come to pass is because it is based on the promises of God, and God's promises are always kept. Second Corinthians 1:20. All the promises of God are are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So we may say on October 24th, we hope the Cornhuskers beat the Buckeyes, <laughs> and we probably don't expect that to happen, <laughs> but we can certainly say we, hope, we can hope in the glory of God, and we know that that is certain. That is guaranteed. And here that idea of the glory of God is the glorified state that is ours in Christ. It is what awaits us when Christ returns. We hope in the glory of God. We will be glorified as Jesus is glorified. We will have a body like he has a body right now, a glorified body. But then in verse 3, Paul says, not only do we rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we also rejoice or boast in our tribulations. Verse 3, and not only that, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Now, now think about this for a moment. If you recall, oh, maybe it was about two months ago. Okay, two months ago, 
I did a, a sermon on James 1, 1 through 4, where he says, count it all joy when you face various trials, because you know that the trials produce perseverance, perseverance produces hope, and, and so on and so forth. And we mentioned there that the unbelieving world, if you're an unbeliever and you see trials happening in your life, you kind of chalk it up to bad luck, you chalk it up to karma, you chalk it up to whatever. Okay, it's like the old bumper sticker where it says excrement happens, right? It's just stuff that happens in your life. It's just unhappy intrusions into your ordinarily happy life. They have no purpose. They have no reason. They don't produce anything. It's just something you have to deal with from time to time because, hey, that's the world we live in. That's how the unbeliever sees trials. They don't serve any purpose. It's just you, you're living in a cruel world governed by fate, governed by chance. Okay? That's how they see trials. But for the one who is justified by faith, we can glory and boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we can also boast in our tribulations because they have a divine purpose. They have a divine purpose. And think about it. It's like, and when tribulations come in your life, if you are justified by grace through faith in Christ, if you have peace with God, if you have access with God, what can the tribulations do to you? <laughs> you know, it's just like, I, you know, that's fine. I understand this. This is, this is life. And God is going to use these to mature me, to perfect me, to, to bring me to completion in Christ. I know that my hope is secure, so I can go through these also confident and also boasting in my trials. Our tribulations produce perseverance, patience, endurance. Just like any exercise routine you go on, the more you do the work, the more your body adjusts to the exertion. But similarly, the knowledge that we are justified by faith and now have peace and access with God, then even the trials and tribulations in life lose their edge. They lose their their teeth, okay? Because we know we are already at peace with God. We already have access to God through prayer. And it gets even better. It gets even better in verses four and five. And you know, he says, not only that, you know, it's like, it's like the old thing. It's like, and, and wait, there's even more. <laughs> the old game show thing, right? Uh, and perseverance then produces character and character produces hope. You get hope again. And he says, this hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So just as tribulation produces perseverance, but this perseverance then in turn produces a character in us. Now, have you ever been around someone who has patiently and graciously gone through tribulations? If they've done so, and if you're, if you're around people like that, it's truly a sight to behold. You know, you see the grace of God working in their life, you see how they are bearing up under, and, and, and it's, it's, it's really a blessing to see people who have that, that right attitude. Because really, if you think about it, there's only two responses to trials in life, right? You can get better, or you can get bitter. You can get better, or you can get bitter, okay? And I've experienced both responses in my life. You know, I've had trials, and I've gotten bitter, and then people don't want to be around me because I'm kind of grumpy and mean and, and um, off-putting. But in other cases, I've been able, by the grace of God, to endure patiently under the tribulations. 
The point being is that persevering under tribulations produces a character. And the idea of that word character is it carries the meaning of having uh, the quality of having stood the test. Okay, you have been tested and you've been shown accepted. Okay, you, you've, you've passed the test. That's the character he's talking about. You've matured. And that proven character then in turn produces hope. Like we said, we already talked about hope, so we don't need to repeat that. But it should be clear that the objective fact that we have been justified by faith and that we have peace, access, and hope, this hope is produced in the crucible of trials. And we can be patient and we can endure trials because we know that we have God on our side. We have peace with God. God is on our side. He is going to see it through. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. The tribulations that we face will never destroy us if God is on our side. So it doesn't matter how hard it feels like right now. Know that God is in control of how long the trial lasts. He controls of, he's going to control how painful the trial is. And he's going to control what it produces in your life. So in a sense, then, this idea of being able to glory in our trials um, I'm going to use Paul's words because sometimes I feel as I, I can't stress this enough that we can, we can have glory in our trials and tribulations if we are justified. Paul, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, you don't need to turn there, but in Romans 8.18, these are two verses that are very similar. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the weight of glory which shall be revealed in us. So Paul is looking ahead. He knows that in Christ, his salvation is secure. He knows that his, his glorification is assured. He knows that in Christ, he is firmly secure. And then what he says is, what I, I know what's coming, because I have faith and I believe it, it's hope. And I know that what's there is going to be way better than anything I'm going through right now. So it's that... You know, maybe to use a very silly example, okay, if you like uh, pineapple upside down cake, (laughs) as Fred likes pineapple upside down cake, all right, Fred might be willing to go through a lot of trials and tribulations if he knew that the world's best pineapple upside down cake was waiting for him at home. It's like... You know, I, I, could, I could bear with this a little bit because I know <laughs> that I'm going to have a great dessert. Okay, it's a silly example, but the point is, is that Paul knows by faith that his, his salvation is secure. His, his end is, is certain. He's going to be with Christ. In fact, you know, in Philippians, he says, you know, I, you know, I, says, I don't know, I may die. You know, I'm, I'm in a jail, I may die. He says, but... I'm ready to die because I know that when I die, I'm going to get, you know, for me to live is Christ. But then he says, what to die is gain. Because I know that when I leave this world, I'm going to be in the presence of Christ. And that's far better. And then what he says, because he knows that he says, then the little things I'm going through here doesn't matter. It's, you know, these sufferings in the present time are not even worthy of being compared to what I'm going to get when I when Christ comes and when I die. Similarly, he says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, our light affliction, 
which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, light affliction. Now, if you know anything about Paul's life, particularly 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is sort of like an autobiography of Paul's troubles and travails that he's gone through. He lists them you know, in detail, all the things he's gone through and, and all the things he's suffered for the gospel. You know, and you read that, it's like, wow. <laughs> and I don't know if I could go through any of that. And then he says, well, this is this light affliction. <laughs> this light affliction, this little, you know, bump in the road I'm going through is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory I have. That's the idea that if you are justified by grace through faith in Christ, then you can boast in your trials because you know that God is using them to work something in you. So Paul then closes this section in verse 5 by telling us that this, that this unassailable hope that he has does not disappoint. Verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So the hope that is the result of proven character, which is the result of persevering under trials, is a hope that doesn't let us down. It is a hope that is sure. It is a hope that does not disappoint. His hope is not going to leave us hanging, to use modern language. And this is the nature of Christian hope. It is a sure thing. Paul says something similar in Philippians 1.20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So he has this earnest expectation and hope that in nothing he will be ashamed. Because again, he knows in whom he has believed. And here's the reason why this hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. And the word there for poured out, it just, it's liberally given. Okay, it is abundantly given. It is Nothing held back, okay? It is just lavished upon us. One of my favorite verses is in Philippians 2, 4, where he says, but God who is rich in mercy, okay? He's not miserly. He doesn't like dole out mercy in little, you know, okay, this is your mercy for the month. Don't use it all. Don't spend it all in one place, okay? Because I can't give you any more until next month. No, he's rich in mercy. He's like, here, have mercy. Okay? Have grace, have it all. Have the love poured, poured out in your hearts. Again, there's many, many passages that speak here. Of course, he talks about the Holy Spirit here who has uh, been given to us. And there's many passages that speak of the Holy Spirit as a gift or a down payment. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 22, or 21 and 22, he says, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, that word sealed, the certificate, the, the promissory note, the, the idea that it is, it is settled, okay? It has been given. And of course, in Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons of God, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Because the Spirit is in us, we now have the ability to acknowledge God as our Father. 
The spirit is given to us. It is the spirit of adoption in the sense that he confirms within us that we can call God Father. And then, of course, that great passage in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, that is Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed. Again, that word sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee. That word there is, is it talks about like a down payment, talks about like earnest money. You may have talked about this before. If you're going to buy a home, in most cases you're asked to give in earnest. It's just it's money that you give to say, yeah, I really do intend to buy this house. OK, the Holy Spirit is given to us as an earnest in which God is saying, yeah, I really do intend to claim you as one of my own. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to prove that. He has given us a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is given to us as the guarantee of our Christian hope. The Holy Spirit underwrites then what Paul says in Philippians 1 6, where he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, how do you know that the work that God began in you will be finished? Because he's giving you the Holy Spirit as a promise of that. That Holy Spirit is, is a promise that he will finish the work he started in you. Because what's the Holy Spirit's job, essentially, in the life of a believer? It is to work in us sanctification. It is to conform us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He is taking us as fallen individuals and working us over so that when he's done, when his work is done, we're all going to look, in, this, in a way, like Jesus Christ. Okay, I mean, not physically, but, you know, when God looks at us, he's going to see Jesus Christ. He's going to see the righteousness of his son worked out in us by the Holy Spirit. So these are some of the benefits and implications that we have uh, of our justification by faith. We have peace with God. We have access by faith and we can glory in tribulations. And we have a hope that, as the authorized would say, maketh not ashamed. Now, next week, when we look at Romans 5, 6, verses 6 through 11, we're going to see the nature and character of this love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. But for now, we'll stop here.